Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome, welcome. Uh, We have uh, a very interesting, provided I do my job correctly, we have a very interesting show uh, today. We're going to be talking, as we have many times in the past, much to our good fortune, uh, with Adam Gopnik, uh, who is, of course, a regular writer for The New Yorker. Uh, His newest book is A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. And yes, I mean, you know, these days, hardly anybody ever runs as a liberal anymore. If you go back to the 2018 election cycle, there were a lot of people running as progressives, including people who were not by any means progressives. Uh, but there was you hear a lot of people saying, oh, I'm a liberal. I subscribe to the, the precepts of liberalism. So uh, and, and then there's sort of a sense that liberalism was such weak tea uh, in 2016 that it may account for the ability of Donald Trump, a completely inappropriate person to ascend to the White House. So Adam has been exploring a lot of those questions, but not in the present, more in the past, uh, looking at the roots of liberal liberalism. He's joining us now. Um, and Adam, with your permission, I'm going to begin by reading a, a sentence of yours that um, you say kind of sums up liberalism, mm-hmm. but also opens it up to all kinds of frustrations. And so every time I kind of lower my voice, that means Adam has put this in parentheses. Liberalism is an evolving political practice that makes the case for the necessity and possibility of imperfectly egalitarian social reform and even greater uh, if not absolute, tolerance of human difference through reasoned and mostly unimpeded conversation, demonstration, and debate. So uh, react to that a little bit. React to your own sentence, Adam. I deliberately Adam <laughs> tried to write the most graceless sentence of my career as a writer mm. to sum up what liberalism is. And of course, I was joking about the reality, Colin, that liberalism is an, is an ungainly uh, enterprise. It's one of the reasons why people tend to resist it. As, as I say in the book, you know, the uh, the Marxist can say, I have nothing but to free mankind from its chains. And the Christian conservative says, I am for the greater glory of God and country. And the liberal says, I am for largely for reform, but um, especially for being nicer to everybody except the people who probably don't deserve to be treated too nicely most of the time. It's a kind of Woody Allen uh, intonation on that sentence. And I think that's true. Now, I was trying to be funny. I was trying to uh, poke a joke at myself and at ourselves as liberals, but I was also trying to make a serious point. Liberalism is a practice. It's a temperament that's evolved over hundreds of years rather than an ideology with neat axioms that you can can follow and believe in. It's a credo more than a creed, if that makes sense. It's something that we believe in Oh, I, I, sorry, I put that the wrong way around, a creed more than a credo. It's a practice that we take in from the past rather than a, a, a set of beliefs that we try to enforce all the time. And this book, you know, I've been writing about liberals and liberalism, liberal philosophers, liberal activists, liberal a- actors of every kind for 30 plus years at The New Yorker. And this book was my attempt to 
synthesize and even in a way summarize what I see as the the crucial liberal principles. Right. I, first of all, I would just want to say that this book is wonderfully written, uh, and but it also made me feel undereducated. Uh, and I mean, the breadth and depth of this book uh, and the characters who run through it, and they're not the exp- it's not about Paul Wellstone, you know, it's about John Stuart Mill and Chrissy Hind, who of course always talked about in the same <laughs> sentence, Bayard Rustin, Galileo and his father, uh, a lute player who knew, Shakespeare, Montaigne, Fe- Frederick Law Olmsted, Hartford Boy, Holla, Great uh, Boy. Georgia Eliot, Philip Roth. Uh, so this is, you looked for inspiration uh, among some of the historical thinkers who created the wellsprings of liberalism, but also you turned to the arts and the humanities an awful lot uh, in order to find people who could articulate your thesis. That, that's exactly right, Colin, because it seems to be liberalism, as I say, it is a temperament. And liberal liberalism and humanism are deeply joined. And one of the, the points of this book is that humanism preceded liberalism, and humanism always will precede liberalism. Our desire, our movement towards compassion, our movement away from hierarchy, our sense that Social sympathy, sympathy with other people is enough to build a a country around, to build a state around. Those are all humanistic impulses that are part of liberalism, but uh, preceded. Humanism comes before liberalism. I say someplace. My daughter thought it was too neat a soundbite that social contacts precede the social contract. Uh, But it was my attempt to take an essayist license exactly and say, I'm not going to write you a um, a philosophical treatise. I'm going to write you an essay about the great liberal spirits who have illuminated the world. And as you say, they include novelists like George Eliot, a painter like Manet, every bit as much as they include uh, the philosophers you'll encounter in a political science class. You know, a a lot of the impetus for this book seems to be a conversation or a series of conversations really between you and your daughter, actually between you and both of your kids. But Olivia, uh, you know, is the key actor. That's right. She's uh, the one who's going to be demanding royalties. So, um, uh, yeah, she's at the beginning of the book. She's at the end of the book, uh, this conversation. And, And my sense is that post-2016, she, like a lot of young people, felt as though conventional liberalism, however you see that laid out, and I assume one of the obvious places was in the candidate representing the Democratic Party in that election, was insufficient somehow, insufficient to address the needs of society, insufficient to inspire uh, generations in desperate need of, of inspiration, and ultimately unwilling to talk significantly about the redistribution of wealth resources, access, education, the kinds of things that young people today think liberalism should be about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the real uh, joke, though, Colin, I should add, is that Olivia, in the course of these uh, these three years, has moved decisively to my right uh, <laughs> as this as this all has happened, as she's been exposed particularly to a particular kind of um, vacuous kinds of academic leftism. But yes, that was where we started this conversation on the night of the election in November 2016 when I tried to take her out and reassure her and failed as all fathers always will fail, as all parents fail. Um, and But yes, she uh, raised for me, because she's, she's a smart young woman, uh, those objections, those generational objections, and I had to try and respond to them throughout the book. Uh, you know, the point I try to make for her, and this is exactly why I tried to take a much broader view of uh, what liberalism is and who the liberal heroes and heroines ought to be, uh, is that we have a fantastic tradition uh, to draw on. You mentioned before, it's one of the heroes of the book is Bayard Rustin, not a name that many people conjure with anymore, but he was the great African-American gay activist who actually organized 
the March on Washington. And I wanted Olivia to know about him. I wanted her to know about how when the March on Washington was going absolutely nowhere, they had to call him in, even though there was enormous prejudice against uh, gay men in normal civil, in Dr. King's circle, had to call him in because he literally was the guy who chartered all the buses. Right. He was literally the guy who thought about all of the sandwiches you had to make. I could call this book A Thousand Small Sandwiches because mm-hmm. it was about making all of those small changes about organization and activism without which any possibility of progressive change was impossible. And Rustin's a very moving figure because he never abandoned those beliefs under, he was arrested and imprisoned 25 times in his life, but he believed in what he called uh, democratic means constitutional measures. That was his... uh, and nonviolent action. Those were the three dance steps in his idea of liberalism. And that's not somebody who was occupying a frightened center. He wasn't somebody who was some kind of tepid middle of the rotor. He was the key activist in the greatest struggle for human freedom in our history, the civil rights movement. But he saw it entirely in liberal terms, in terms of building coalitions, uh, pursuing the small sanity immediately at hand to make a large change. I wanted Olivia's generation to know about him. Yeah. And for those who don't know about him, I would recommend the Jervis Anderson biography. I don't I forget what it's called, but it's really good. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. It's an old uh, New York New Yorker writer. There you go. So, um, but, you know, you need two things, right? You need the guy who knows how many sandwiches are needed and where the porta bodies are going to go, or at least where people are going to go to the bathroom, and all that kind of stuff. And he has to be animated, as you say, by by spiritual and intellectual vigor in the form of those three dance steps. But that's not enough either. Ultimately, you need the visionaries, the ones who are able to set people uh, aflame with their rhetoric, with their ideas, with their promise of a different future. Um, I mean, Rustin by himself is never going to be enough, is he? No, and Rustin saw himself as somebody who was putting the best possible frame around Dr. King. He said, actually, at one point, he said, Dr. King couldn't organize vampires to go to a bloodbath, (laughs) uh, which was a startling thing to discover that he said. But uh, he was serving. He was in service to Dr. King's vision, which he shared in large part had helped um, instruct him in. Uh, it's that combination of the two that that's uh, that's absolutely essential. Uh, the point is is that without liberal activism, radical visions are impotent, and that's been demonstrated to be true in our not just in our history, but in history uh, generally, again and again. You mentioned John Stuart Mill, who's one of my heroes, great middle of the nineteenth century British uh, philosopher, but also an active politician, a member of Parliament, who organized the um, the northern mill workers not to process southern cotton at the height of the American Civil War as a, an act of abolitionism because he was such a passionate abolitionist. Again, that's not middle-of-the-road activism. That's classic, um, true liberal activism that involves actually pursuing the sanity at hand uh, for the cause of a greater good. And I tried to include figures like that in this book so that there'd be no uh, absence of that kind of radical prophetic vision. Frederick Douglass, who I wrote a long essay about for The New Yorker um, earlier this year, is obviously a crucial figure from an American point of view. Because what makes Douglass so fascinating is that he's both. He's both radical prophet and liberal politician uh, within one skin. He, he was uncompromisingly, obviously, anti-slavery. And he believed that slavery would have to be abolished by any means necessary. At the same time, he rejected John Brown's uh, plan for a pointless invasion and allied himself with Abraham Lincoln, not only during Lincoln's lifetime, but afterwards was uh, content to be a Republican in those days when the Republican Party was the liberal party, 
content to be a Republican Party uh, politician. He was both a prophet and a politician. And he's such a fascinating figure because he incorporates both sides of the, the liberal vision within one man. Right. So, um, by the way, just back to Olivia for a second. I, there's no greater disservice to the American or international left than the activities of vacuous leftist professors um, like academia. It will, like, send, you, it will <laughs> send a smart left of center girl to the right yeah. uh, very quickly. But I think it's it's true, and it's one of the things that I try and pursue as well in this book. I have, a, I hope, Colin, a very a sympathetic and charitable view of the right-wing critique of liberalism and a very sympathetic and, I hope, uh, charitable view of the left-wing critique. But one of the points I try to make and when I'm dealing with the left-wing critique is that obsessing about issues of origins, what I call essentialism, it's a big term, but it just means habit of only evaluating somebody's arguments in terms of their origin. Who are they? What kind of person are they? Where do they fit on your intersectional grid, that's a very reactionary idea. It's an exasperatingly reactionary idea. It runs against the whole wave of uh, modern liberalism, which is all about empowering people. It's about emancipating people from their assigned social roles and letting them find new social roles and identities. Although it's also, it may be wired into us too. You know, the social scientists who study political inclinations do experiments. These are like, you know, Drew Weston kind of experiments where they'll, you know, they'll take something that looks kind of ideologically neutral. Let's say some kind of policy about Lyme disease and they'll tell a hundred people that it comes from Nancy Pelosi and a different hundred people that it comes from Paul Ryan. And then people's reactions to it are completely conditioned on that place of origin. Absolutely. Nothing to do because, in fact, we are already hardwired and to do exactly what you're talking to be, about. To be tribal. You know, my favorite example of exactly that kind of research is where if you ask people who self-identify as conservatives uh, to uh, monitor their uh, energy use in order to bring down their own costs, they'll turn it up if they believe that that will annoy their liberal neighbors. <laughs> they would rather They would rather – uh, get at the liberal neighbor than bring down their own energy prices. That's a crucial theme of this book, though, Colin. Identity always manages to be more important to us than utility. Identity is crucial. And so-called progressives, liberals like myself, underestimate the power of identity at our peril. And that's one of the things that happened in 2016. It's one of the ways we have to reform and amend liberalism, I think, is to have be able exactly to understand that identity, human uh, thirst for community, for national um, uh, commonality will never go away. It's not something we can wish away. Right. And, and I mean, uh, in your book, I hear distant uh, misty echoes of Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas, right? Mm-hmm. That notion that people who could benefit from liberalism in all the ways that you describe, as you say, right. every time you get a social security check or you vote while you're a woman or an African-American or go to a gay wedding or like a, a hundred, we could come up with a hundred different examples. You are essentially benefiting from the incremental gains uh, of liberalism. Liberalism, but as Frank said, and others have articulated too, you go out to certain parts of the country, and they don't see that, and they don't see that as the answer. They are operating under significant disadvantages and living with problems for which liberalism offers a solution, and they reject it. Now, help us understand that. Well, and here's where I would tend to differ with Frank, though I think that's a very impressive book, and with other others who share his point of view. They're baffled by the inability of these, you know folks in the flyover country to see where their own economic interests are aligned. They ought to be progressives, yet they vote for Donald Trump. 
that's baffling. But I don't think it is baffling because I think one of the things that you see historically is that, as I say someplace in the book, it, back in the 19th century, imperialism was the cosmopolitanism of the Cockneys in, in London. Uh, there's a deep attachment to the idea of national grandeur. And some of the most admirable politicians and political actors of modern times were people like Charles de Gaulle or in another way, Churchill. I write a lot about de Gaulle in this book who were able to make a politics of national grandeur that wasn't fascistic, that wasn't merely nationalist. And that's clearly something that um, we need, that the world responds to, and that liberals should not uh, deprecate. And it's, it's been a progressive folly for 200 years to think, oh, well, eventually the working people of the nation will align with our politics because that's where their interests lie. Identity always trumps interests historically. You know, uh, in listening to you say that and, and reading stuff in the book, I find myself thinking of, remember when uh, Obama, I think it would have been in 07 or 08, he got caught with that kind of grainy audio at some fundraising event. Yeah, cling but, to the, they cling to their rifles. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got the whole quote for you because it's kind of uh-huh. interesting. Among other things, it really does pre- predict 2016. He says, you right. go into these small towns in Pennsylvania and like a lot of small towns in the Midwest, the jobs have been gone now for 25 years and nothing's replaced them. And they fell through the Clinton administration and the Bush administration and each successive administration has said that somehow these communities are going to regenerate and they have not. And it's not surprising then that they get bitter, they cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. I'll just let you react. Yeah, you know, as, as often happens, you know, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth right. and gets attacked for it. The real um, weakness there, I say, as a, as a former editor, is in the verb choice, cling, right? Mm-hmm. If you make cling into love, I think it becomes much less uh, right. offensive to those people. Cling is a verb that implies uh, emotional weakness or neediness. But Obama's telling the truth there. Obama's mm-hmm. telling the truth. And he's telling a positive and empathetic truth. Uh, in fact, not at all a condescending truth. What he's saying is, is that you cannot be surprised that people who have been deprived of meaningful work or a sense of uh, positive progress where they live and in their own communities will therefore turn to symbols of autonomy and independence and power um, like, like the gun, like the flag, uh, like Donald Trump, odd as that is, may seem to us, uh, to find meaning and that that search for meaning should never be condescended to because it's it's deeply human. And I think that Obama was right about all of that. Now, the question is, what do you do about it? In other words, yes, it anticipates 2016, but that's not the only thing it can anticipate. And the work of politics is not to come up with uh, rhetorical solutions saying you all should align with us because we're uh, that's where your economic interests are. The real work of politics and of really good politicians is to be able to say, yes, I recognize your complaint. I recognize and I acknowledge your misery, but I can show you a better way than uh, waving a flag or a red hat. That's hard work and great politicians are there to do that work. Every liberal politician of any stature has always had to try and do that work, building a coalition uh, among fundamentally unlike kinds. You know, I give an example just to suggest uh, how entrenched what we sometimes now call identity politics are in our history. There's a great memo that uh, Clark Clifford, a presidential counselor, wrote for Harry Truman in 1947 saying, here's how you can win in 1948, even though no one's, everyone says you can't. 
And it just lists what were then called pressure groups and what you have to do to placate the farmers and the workers and the Jews and the Irish and what were then called the Negroes. And you put together a coalition that way. And that, I think, is the work of liberal politics. It's exactly why I say it's a temperament uh, rather than an ideology. It's a practice rather than a, a, a set of fixed beliefs. We always have to try and build coalitions in which people's identities and their hunger for identity can be put to um, uh, the uses of empathy and broadening compassion rather than simply to the practice of hate. So, you know, that whole idea of the origin of an argument uh, either damns or, or blesses it uh, in, in the view of the person listening uh, it kind of gets into nomenclature, too. I always feel like a lot of liberal ideas are kind of like root canal. If people called it something else, they wouldn't be quite as scared of it. Root canal just sounds really scary. And so, you know, we had that incredible moment where uh, in polling, people rejected Obamacare but said they were in favor of the Affordable Care Act, right. you know, that, that the name of it was what was really important. So you take a thing like the Affordable Care Act, and, and you know, I always say that people say that they don't like poetry, and then they hear, like, the Auden poem in Four Weddings and a Funeral or some- Stop Naruto all the, the clocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and people go, that's great. What is that? Can I get a yeah. copy of that somewhere? And it's it's that's been the case with healthcare reform, right? People who didn't want government meddling in healthcare now, in polling, overwhelmingly support the Affordable Care Act. But people like me who reject, uh, who aren't as tolerant as incrementalism as you are, Adam, see the Affordable Care Act as essentially a failure. Didn't do enough. Didn't have a public option. Didn't blah, 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 blah. So I, I don't know. React to that. I mean, the Affordable well, Care Act, I would assume, I, is right. Gopnikism, you know, writ large. No, no, actually it isn't. And let me, let me, because I want to clarify that actually. You know, I have been arguing, fighting on paper, which is the way I fight, <laughs> for a Canadian model, national yeah. health insurance, for 30 years. I wrote my first piece about it in The New Yorker in the mid-'80s. I did a long debate with Malcolm Gladwell about the virtues of Canadian health care in 1999. So I am a, I'm on the, the Bernie Sanders side mm -hmm. of, of this particular argument, having grown up in Canada. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, but I recognize that um, national health care came to Canada in specific circumstances of the Great Depression in the 1930s and then through the mobilization of the Second World War. It took a specific path. There were a thousand small sanities at work to make that happen. And uh, they're not immediately at hand uh, for mm -hmm. Americans. You know, you can tell Americans that we would all be better off with uh, national health insurance, but they look at their private insurance and understandably they have the natural human inclination to stick with what seems to be working. It's in all of us talking about those things that are implanted in us and they're reluctant to do it. I would point to the success of Medicare. It couldn't be a more deeply entrenched uh, American institution than Medicare, Nat which is national health insurance, Canadian right. style, for uh, elderly people. Um, you can build on that. I mean, I would have thought it would have been wiser to kind of uh, creep downward mm -hmm. from Medicare and make the entry age uh, younger and younger. Uh, over a period they of time. Try, they tried that. And Joe Lieberman, and you know, this is the, yes, this in the theory. Everything is, that's wrong with America is Joe Lieberman's, Lieberman's fault. fault. And, and that's one of those things, right? right. That was exactly the idea. But Joe Lieberman couldn't win that. Uh, couldn't win in Florida in 2000, and he and <laughs> it, it couldn't do there. Yeah, and that was frustrating. And it's hugely frustrating, right? But we will always be facing those frustrations. It's an important point, I think, Colin. Put it a little abstractly, but it speaks directly to the healthcare issue. Incrementalism is a necessary consequence of pluralism. There are going to be a lot of people in a country who are suspicious of, allergic to, 
uh, a social reform, no matter how logical and necessary it is. And they are going to object. That's what happened when Massachusetts, if you remember, elected a Republican senator out of fear of what Obamacare might bring, if you recall at that, mm-hmm. that strange moment. We can't wish that away. The classic radical leftist uh, solution for that is to suppress the people who disagree with you. That doesn't work out very well either. It works out horribly in truth. So you're stuck with incrementalism of that kind. Some, But we've got Obamacare now, and that's a good base. And I'm confident that, if you, that even after the Trump years, it still uh, remains in place and that it remains a base to build on. That's the history of positive social reform, not just in America, but um, throughout the world. Uh, and it's, it's one we have to, to carry on with. I tend to agree, let me add just one more thing here, with um, Mayor Pete, that uh, where real reform is necessary for America is in the democratic deficit that we suffer from, which is reflected in everything from the Electoral College to the formation of the Senate and so on. Uh, And that really uh, unmans us because if we could actually have things in terms of the popular majorities, I think we'd be much more... Uh, much further along where you and I would like us to be. All right. That's a good bridge to something I want to bring up at the beginning of the next segment. We'll take a break. We're talking to Adam Gopnik. His new book is A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. We'll be back after this. To set a criminal free And I ran out of seven grain bee pollen, macrobiotic, organic, sustainable medical marijuana My jerky need Do you know how hard it is to be a liberal? We're back, uh, and with us is Adam Gopnik, uh, author of A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure, Adventure of Liberalism. You read them all the time in The New Yorker. Um, so, um, Adam, you know, as we were winding up that first segment, uh, you were talking about that notion of the kind of deficit of democracy. Uh, and so in your, in the book, there's this one place where you're contrasting or you're talking about the kind of dynamic tension between the two, cons- uh, two thinkers of the past, Burke, the conservative, Montaigne, the liberal. And you say that, that you know, they have obviously very, very different views uh, of the world and of political philosophy. But those views are mostly contained within the level playing field and the safe playing field of parliamentary democracy. And then Burke freaks out because suddenly, uh, you know, heads are getting cut off uh, and and the rules are gone. And the big idea is so big that uh, it's an excuse for breaking all the rules. Well, that feels like the democracy deficit we have right now, that the rules, I mean, like today, you know, and I, I know you think that the disease of pundits is presentism, but here in the present, I mean, we've got a president, president who isn't going to follow any of the rules. I don't know if it's in service of a big idea or not. Uh, listen, this book, I would not have written this book if we were not in a national emergency. Mm-hmm. And I recognize the severity of the national emergency as clearly as anyone does. Uh, and I am the last thing in the world this book is about is, oh, calm down. It'll all go away. Uh, but what I am trying to say here is, OK, and I write all the time, as you know, in The New Yorker about the national emergency, patting people over the head saying, pay attention. Do not normalize things that will never be normal. Do not make acceptable things that are unacceptable and so on. But I wanted in this book to ask another set of questions. Say, all right, what are the values we actually believe in? Mm-hmm. We can construct a mirror image of Trumpism, sort of progressive Trumpism, that is equally hysterical, equally 
uh, intolerant and uh, equally ignorant of uh, the best lessons of history. Or we can try to coalesce around values that we can, that liberal-minded people, and I include in this in this fight um, conservatives, what I think of as constitutional conservatives, who may not share our views on uh, national health insurance, but who certainly share our views on the rule of law, or share our views on the necessity of liberal institutions like free, uh, free press or free... Uh, uh, freely functioning universities and so on. And the, those are the values that will be the ones that we can turn to in our resistance. I don't, res I don't resist the word resistance, right? Mm -hmm. But as I wrote in a, in a piece not long ago, uh, you know, resistance and resilience are parts of the same struggle seen at different moments. This book is about that resilience. What are the values we can turn to? Who are the heroes we can look at? Where can we find reasonable optimism for the future by looking at the past. That's what this book is about. Right. So then I'm wondering, and, I, and once again, I, I, I get, got to the sentence about what but the disease of pundits uh, is presentism. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to ask these questions anyway. I don't care. Um, so, so in terms of the positive part of it, I mean, people are going to want the book, particularly people who believe in those things in that sentence, the tolerance of human difference through reasoned and unimpeded conversation, the uh, egalitarian social reform. They're going to want to know if they can use this book as kind of a Rosetta Stone and hold it up next to, say, Joe Biden and say, well, is he those things? Uh, and do you, do you see your argument as something that somebody can use to navigate 2019 and especially 2020? I, I hope so, Colin. I really do. I'm not a pundit and don't pretend to be one. I'm an essayist, and I, that's the point of view from which I write. And I, you know, I wouldn't, I, I'm the least prescient political person on earth. Um, I get everything wrong always when I'm trying to make <laughs> predictions. But I do hope that people can look at it and say, oh, right, these are values that we can believe in. These are values that we do believe in already that we can coalesce around. And one of the lessons of that, I think, exactly, Colin, is, is that it's anti-messianic. In a certain level, and I really believe this, and this may sound like a perverse thing to say, it doesn't matter. One of the lessons of the history of liberal humanism and institutions is you don't need a genius. You don't need a perfect person to get you out of a mess. It's all of us together are going to get out of the mess. So I worry less about should it be Biden or Harris? Should it be Mayor Pete or Beto O'Rourke? And I think more about if all of these folks, to use an Obamaism, uh, basically uh, share that awkward, ungainly, uh, rhetorically unshiny commitment to the values you just outlined, we'll be okay if we can if we can manage that way. We shouldn't have, liberals don't have utopian hopes for political change. They believe that Real change happens through communities. They believe real change happens through uh, changing values. That's the way, you know, one of my favorite examples, which I give in the book, is of gay marriage. Astonishing thing. Olivia and I, you know, were watching the Kennedy-Nixon debates on YouTube from 1960. And it is unimaginable that anyone would have asked either of those men, uh, what do you think about marriage for homosexuals? Now, aside from the fundamentalist extremes, that's an acquired social right. and We don't really even debate it very much anymore. And that happened very rapidly, but it happened after a long, long period of social and political gestation on the part of people who weren't in government. It moved its way and was ratified eventually. So I believe in that model of social change, and I believe in that model of politics. It means we don't have to have a messianic figure uh, to uh, achieve what we want to achieve. Uh, that's a good way of not uh, endorsing anybody, but I hope that the function of this book would be to say to people, that's right, these are the values uh, that we share, and those are values that we don't need 
a genius. We don't need another messiah to um, instantiate in our in our social life. We just need um, sanity. Well, not, not just sanity. I mean, that raises the question of how yeah. do values change? Why do values change? And I think that does um, rebound towards your argument about humanism uh, and creative figures. I mean, why why did our attitudes about gay marriage and, and homosexuality in general change? Well, it probably had less to do with political figures and more to do with cultural figures. It probably had more to do with Ellen DeGeneres than it, than it did with Al Franken, or actually, bad example, he's both. He's an entertainer and a right. politician. But and, and similarly, you know, I mean, Lincoln famously maybe called Harriet Beecher Stowe the little woman who started this, started this whole thing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and but I think Stowe and, and Twain's creation of Jim, you know, these probably have more power to alter attitudes about race. Uh, and, and Ellen DeGeneres, DeGeneres has a, a greater ability to, add, to, to alter attitudes about sexual orientation than any political leader. I couldn't agree more. You know, you cited an instance earlier in this conversation, W.H. Auden, right? Mm-hmm. One of the greatest, uh, uh, in my mind, the greatest English poet of the 20th century, uh, homosexual. The poem he wrote was a poem of, of gay love, which then took a second life during the AIDS crisis through a very popular British romantic comedy. And absolutely, every um, that's what A Thousand Small Sanities references. Every one of those little steps of Auden, Auden's world, Auden's world finding its way into British romantic comedy, being there as a, as a salve uh, during the AIDS crisis, that's the way real uh, social and moral change happens. Where I, the one thing I do want to underline, though, Colin, is because this is a place where liberals, as I understand them, and the liberalism I'm advocating for is very different from conservatism. It's not enough, right? Those are the core changes, community changes, changes in morals, changes in understanding that do rise from the practice of the arts as much as from politics. But they only have real force in the world when they can enlist the government with them. Uh, my heroine, Harriet Taylor, believed in the absolute freedom of women, but she understood it wasn't something that women could they, women could make for themselves, but they couldn't enforce for themselves until it became uh, uh, a policy, until it became politics. Uh, I think that's an important point to underline. We should say Harriet Taylor was John Stewart Mill's main, Mills, main squeeze. Big uh, main squeeze, and eventually his wife, and he always said the biggest influence on his work, and no male historian believed that <laughs> until feminist historians got to work and said, you know what, she was every bit as smart as he said she was. Um, and, and similarly, actually, well, no, actually, I'm going to set that one aside for a second. Maybe we can have time time to get back to it. So it seems to me, I just want to sort of go back to the blunt, bluntness with which we look at this stuff. And and uh, there's one incident that has kind of stayed with me. So as I was beholding the Obama presidency, it really was too much of what we now call neoliberalism for me. I uh, I wanted uh, I wanted more change. Uh, I wanted uh, more relief directed to people instead of to, to institutions, institutions, especially financial institutions. There's a whole bunch of things that I wanted. He just wasn't enough of it for me. And just as I was like dealing with commenters on my own writing and stuff like that, I occasionally would run into one who was absolutely flabbergasted. And I remember one of them said to me, it had never I just because they think he's just, you know, Marxists. They think right. he's Karl Marx's baby, yes. you know. So they, they would see it had never occurred to me that there was a critique of Obama from the left, that there was any space at all available to the left of Obama. And I'm thinking, are you out of your minds? This guy is such a centrist. And so there's that perception problem too, right? We don't we don't see things the same way at all. Totally. I remember once Malcolm Gladwell and I went down to uh, Florida for a debate. It must have been in about 2010. And we both were, you know, as Canadians, 
you know, took it for granted that Obama, exactly as you described, was an admirable, cautious neoliberal centrist. Seems self-evident. And this was in a uh, you know gathering in in uh, Southwest Florida, and the fury, the rage, the notion that Obama was the second coming of Red Emma Goldman was astonishing to me and instructive to me, right? Because it reminded me of exactly what I was talking about before. Big societies are extremely pluralist, mm-hmm. and we can't rule out. Uh, those interpretations. Look, the Trump years in large part are uh, in part exactly that kind of phenomenon. What uh, a change that seemed to us, to a lot of us, uh, relatively small, seemed to other people so overwhelming that it was totally disorienting uh, in the new Obama coalition, terrifying and frightening. That's a historical pulse that we can't uh, that we can't negate. I'd add one thing, though, you know, about just saying a moment ago, Colin, about neoliberalism and so on. One of the things I wanted to do in this book is separate the liberal tradition from neoliberal practice. Neoliberal basically means people who believe that free markets ultimately find the right solutions and should be left to work out their own uh, their own way. And though, as I say, it's a favorite French uh, phrase of mine, which is that grown-up people can count to two. Mm-hmm. And I think we can count to two about economics. We can recognize uh, that... Uh, free markets and the capitalism have produced unprecedented levels of prosperity and recognize that they invariably produce great economic inequality and a cycle of uh, busts and uh, depressions. Uh, both of those things can we can hold at once. Liberalism uh, doesn't demand any specific modality of economics, and I think it's a mistake uh, to ask that it, that it does. You know, one of my heroes in the book is Adam Smith, which will surprise many people because they think of him as being the apostle of the narrowest kind of free market. And he was not. He believed that if a society wasn't held together by social sympathy, by a feeling of confidence in our fellow men and women, then free markets would fail. And that's exactly what I think has happened again and again in the world. If you don't have uh, an existing strong sense of common purpose and of trust, uh, you'll end up in Russia. You'll end up with a kleptocracy. So um, I think that we can be agnostic about economics and still be uh, devoted liberals. Right. And, and that that sense of common purpose and the sense of commonality gets somewhat granular, too, in your argument, in the sense that you really are subscribing to, whether we, whether we ascribe it to Habermas or to yeah. Douglas Putnam or to my new favorite, Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, what was the phrase that he used? Commonplace civilization. Commonplace He's, civilization. So, you know, whether you're playing Frisbee in Central Park or sitting in a coffee house having a conversation or belonging to a choir, th- that's the, the whole idea, right? That these things, they can become a pretty bloodless version of Adam Smith if, in fact, we're not all talking to each other in ways, once again, that are not strictly political. Yeah, that's what all of those guys have in common. That's why Habermas celebrated, the the great German sociologist Habermas celebrated the coffee house. He said that's where the Enlightenment was made. And it's why Frederick Law Olmsted wanted to build Central Park. He said those are the kinds of open places we need where people can intersect where we can have commonplace civilization flourishing and we can escape uh, the inherited hierarchies and absolutisms that uh, that we come with. Uh, uh, and that I think, absolutely, that is the granular basis. And you know what? It's not just uh, greeting card stuff. It's not just sentiment. Every time uh, someone has seriously tried to ask the question, what is it that makes democracy flourish? They always answer when they look hard at the at the granularity of it. They say it's that there are people are used to talking to other people who don't belong to their clan. 
that if they've escaped uh, the claims of a blood clan or a religious cohort, and they're able to have daily interactions with people who are unlike themselves. In, in towns like that in Italy, where you have that happening, where people come together to sing Verdi uh, from different backgrounds, democracy flourishes. When you're stuck in your own clan identity, it doesn't. All right, we're going to take another break here, our final break, and then we'll come back for one more stretch of conversation with Adam Gopnik, his new book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. My leaders were the greatest FDR and JFK, cause I'm a liberal, can't you tell? The point is, liberalism should never be confused with pragmatism, socialism, nationalism, rationalism, nihilism, humanism, transhumanism, secular humanism, cynicalism, skepticism, monotheism, pessimism, or optimism. Wait, now I'm confused. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Stewart Mill. On tomorrow's show, The Lost Civilization of VHS. And now... Back to Colin. And back to Adam Gopnik, uh, author of A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. Uh, you've been reading him all these years in The New Yorker. Uh, this is a new book. So one of the things, Adam, that I loved about this book and the thing that is going to challenge me for a while and that I really have to kind of think about and wrestle with is the notion, and I hope I'm not misstating you, but uh, that that we look for kind of a single meaning out of everybody. So, I mean, you talk about how uh, Voltaire gets blamed for a whole bunch of stuff uh, and then uh, his his enemy Rousseau gets blamed for the same things and, and each one of them contains contradictions. At the end, you're, you're with Philip Roth and talking about how Roth really does kind of articulate, you know, a vision of ultimately returning to an American view of things, to an essentially, if not purely patriotic, uh, uh, at least a rooted in America mm-hmm. viewpoint. Although if you think about American pastoral, it just couldn't end <laughs> in a more bleak <laughs> attitude towards being America. There must be some place better than this. This is horrible. So, but but both things are there in Roth, and and that's an interesting idea. And I think most of us we tend to try to read everybody. We read political candidates. We read thinkers. We think, what is this person? And and maybe that's a mistake. Yes. No. You've summed it up extremely well. We live within our contradictions. You know, I begin the whole book with um, John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor having clandestine trysts by the rhinoceros cage at the London Zoo. And one of the very moving things about their love story is is that she was married and couldn't leave her husband, wouldn't leave her husband, and they had to live within that contradiction. They had to reconcile that contradiction. And they did it, if not joyfully, they did it uh, romantically because they recognized that that's the nature of human existence. We are all, as Montaigne, the founder of what I think of as real modern liberalism, said we are all uh, double in ourselves so that we, we reject what we desire and we desire what we reject. So yes, I think that's one of the deep lessons that the the liberal tradition I'm advocating for here um, has to point us. And we have to live within that contradiction. Now, that's not uh, a prescription of complacency, I think, uh, certainly not for me, Colin. It's a prescription of a certain kind of modesty, and it's a prescription of pluralism. It's a prescription about keeping our ears open to counter evidence. It's about being aware of all the things that we fail to remedy. One reason why liberals believe not just in the possibility of reform, but the necessity of reform is that we're always, already, always 
being made aware of cruelties, social cruelties, that we had not noticed before. Just look at the, you know, what's happened when thinking about transgender things in the last, just in the last few years. That's a, we had a shared social blind spot about that, which is being uh, remedied now and so on. So in our understanding of the inevitable and irrevocable contradiction uh, buried within human nature, we have the possibility of having uh, not just a double, but a, uh, a broadly expansive vision. You know, I wonder what you think about that when it, well, I'm going to actually read from a, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times last year. Within just a few years, many liberals went from starting to talk about microaggressions to suggesting that it is, that it is racist even to question whether microaggressions are that important. Gender identity disorder was considered a form of mental illness until <laughs> recently, but today anyone hesitant about transgender women using the ladies' room is labeled a bigot. Liberals denounce cultural appropriation without, in many cases, doing the work of persuading people that there is anything wrong with, say, a teenager not of Chinese descent wearing a Chinese-style mm-hmm. dress to prom or eating at a burrito cart run by two non-Latino women. I think there are many people who feel that for n- no matter how good these causes are, we're over-policed by a generation of outrage hobbyists and offense curators. I, I could not agree more with that notion. I think that those that kind of uh, social policing is illiberal for the most part. We can understand and be sympathetic with it. But look, cultural hybridism is the nature of culture. All cultures are hybrid. All human beings are hybrid. That speaks to the the doubleness we were talking about before. None of us uh, have one identity. We all have multiple identities. We have different uh, political identities, ethnic identities, sexual identities. And none of us should be pinned to one. And none of us should be prevented from speaking because of uh, the possession of one or another uh, of those identities. Because we're white men, for instance. That's one I'm sensitive about, right? <laughs> um, but I, So I think that that's right. And I think that uh, to the degree that we try to shut down any conversation because we mistrust the origin of the speaker, is we're participating in an illiberal action. The great triumph of uh, liberal belief in free speech has been to say again and again, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. You have a right to be heard. And we should not uh, undermine that fundamental liberal belief by a a suspicious need to police everybody's speech. We can endure a lot of bad talk. That's that's really the truth. We can all endure a lot of bad talk and we can distinguish between speech we don't like and acts we can't endure. There's a big difference between somebody insulting my ideology and somebody threatening my person. And we have to, that's a liberal distinction. We have to make it again and again. With only a few minutes left, I, I just I can't resist circling back to Olivia. So she's the one who gets this whole conversation going in one sense is at the beginning of the book. She's looking for change, not stasis. She's looking for a very particular kind of change uh, and and doesn't feel as though uh, anybody left of center is, is in any, any position to deliver that change. Now, you say that college, at least as temporarily, pushed her away <laughs> yes. from the left. But I, I don't know. As she, as she regards the arguments that you make in this book— uh, um, I, not to make her a torchbearer for her entire generation, but how's that going over? Well, I, you know, I directed the book to her. I spoke it out to her, you know, and, and it was one of the great pleasures of my life was talking the book out loud and getting her responses, which I incorporated into the book in, lo- in lots of ways. Uh, you know, I think that uh, inevitably there's an appetite in youth for romantic rebellion, and it's one of the healthiest sides of being young, and it's completely... Uh, not just 
age appropriate, but uh, uh, epoch appropriate and so on. But I was glad to see she had to write an essay on uh, Mill, John Stuart Mill versus <laughs> Karl Marx because they're contemporaries. And I did not nobble the starter. It wasn't like the Kentucky Derby, <laughs> right? I did not move the horse in any direction. I just shut up and waited to see what she would write. And she came out in favor of Mill and reform through reason rather than Marx and revolution through violence. And of course, as a as a father, I was pleased. It probably would have been better for uh, uh, more interesting had she gone the gone the other way. But I do think, look, she is one of a generation of kids who are at a, a crossroads, trying to decide how to deal with a national emergency that we're in, uh, and they're learning. You know, the single most valuable lesson that uh, either of my kids or our, my family, my immediate circle, learned was when my son Luke went to work for the Max Rose campaign in Staten Island mm. last year. And he had to learn, you know, it was a lot tougher. They had to turn a deep red district blue. And what he discovered was is that you had to find ways of talking to people who had two American flags <laughs> on their porch uh, at every time. That was a salutary lesson in exactly paying attention to other people, to other values, finding a common language. That was liberalism uh, in action. And they won the riding, as you remember. They won the mm -hmm. district. They didn't win the district by uh, rhetorical overkill. They didn't win the district by saying, we are right and you are wrong. They didn't win it by saying, how can you possibly take the side of people who are not on your side? They did it by the slow, patient, incremental work of pursuing literally a thousand small sanities, knocking on a thousand specific doors and saying, I believe we can find common ground and build uh, a coalition. And they did. And they won. That, for me, was a truly salutary action. Well, Adam Gopnik, thank you very much for this conversation and for this book. And we both got through it without singing any songs from Hamilton. I think that was pretty impressive restraint. <laughs> do, you, do you know, Colin, I deliberately left Hamilton out of I this know. book. I, I could I'm tell. I'm a huge Hamilton fan because I, I thought it was too easy. We but were talking you, about I'm this a few months it. ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, A Thousand Small Sanities. Uh, this is Adam Gopnik's a new book about the past, present, and future of liberalism, the moral adventure of liberalism. Thanks for that. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, our senior your producer. She's the one who pulled this show together. And we will be back tomorrow with a show about a lost civilization. I don't think I'm even going to say out loud which lost civilization that is. Mm -hmm.